I'm joined today by Mackenzie Tice Arvidson, and Mackenzie was a guest that I wanted to have on the show because of your wealth of knowledge in the field of psychology, which I've noticed our group, the three of us, Patrick, Austin, and myself, have been talking a lot about. We're actually reading a book called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And so there'll be times where we're having discussions and then we'll come to, you know, talk, try to understand what he's talking about, but we realize we're limited in our understanding. So um, I wanted to thank you for coming on and maybe helping us understand <laughs> a little bit better some of, these, some of these ideas. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, getting right into it, I guess uh, if you wanted to let our listeners, all two people know, <laughs> Maybe what, what motivated you to get into psychology? Was it something from a young age or while you were in school? Like what kind of motivated you to, to pursue that? Yeah, um, I, I think it's kind of silly or maybe um, stereotypical maybe, um, but I was originally in school for nursing and you have to take like a Psych 101 course and I don't know what it was but there's something while I was like sitting in my lecture hall and this there was hundreds of students in this like gen ed class and there's something I was like I am so fascinated by this and that had never happened to me in my life so I've always had pretty streamlined interests my whole life which you know music Um, and so it was kind of hard but I also love academics I love learning um, I want to be a learner for the rest of my life. And so, yeah, there was something that clicked. And I remember I told my parents I was switching my major to psychology, and they were so mad. They were like, what job are you going to get? <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's where it happened. There was something about wanting to know why, how our brains work and why people do what they do. So Yeah, yeah. no, it's definitely interesting as far as, you know, being a, a freshman in college and then having to tell your parents, oh, I'm changing my major already. <laughs> I couldn't see that being a tough sell, but obviously it's panned out well for you and, yeah. and your parents, I guess, as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there, there are very few things in life where you're doing that thing or you're learning about something to where you're, you just want to learn more. You have that hunger. And I think it's, interesting to you bring up music because for the listener at home um you know we've played music together for quite a few years all throughout high school um definitely something we're both very passionate about but you know i think there comes a point where you realize okay this can't or maybe it won't be a job or right you know you just kind of understand like everyone's trying to do this maybe we try to do something else but um yeah it's good that you're able to find something that you love to do and I so I majored in accounting in school and uh definitely was something where it's okay I'm just gonna do this wasn't ever very passionate about it but you know say la vie (laughs) (laughs) so I'm trying to trying to you know work through all that right uh currently but um did you take a psychology class in high school at all or was it College was your first one. College was my first one. I could not have cared any less about psychology or really didn't even know. I mean, I knew what it was, I guess, but no, I did not mm-hmm. care. I mean, like, I'm thinking of when I was a kid and they, you, you're you asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. The only thing I ever said was, I want to be a singer. That was it. Yeah. So it was like I had no concept of it. My first 
experience was in college. In college. Although I do know Dr. or Dr. Mr. Holtis had um, a psychology class in high school. Shout shout out Mr. Holtis wherever you are in the world. Yeah, Jesse. So then you're in college, Uh you're majoring in psychology, you love it, you graduate, kind of fast forwarding through the timeline here a little bit, but so you're, maybe it's senior year, you're looking for jobs. Do you have an, uh, do you have an idea of maybe, okay, I'm, I'm interested in learning in this. Do you have an idea of, okay, what's the next step? Where am I going after school? Yeah, so for um, my major, you had to have an internship. Okay. And so I, my uncle works at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So I did my internship over the summer at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. They have a behavioral facility. Um, it's essentially a bunch of inpatient units with children ranging from, I think I, I even saw like two, three years old up to 21. And so I interned there. And so when my senior year of college, they had asked me, we'd love for when you graduate to come work. So I That's pretty a much, good feeling. yeah, it is, <laughs> it is, especially with my parents who are like, you'll never find a job. So right. yeah, it was very, very good, but very challenging working at, at children's. So, so you do the internship, mm-hmm. you love it. That's quite an age range too, if you're oh, yeah. working with two to 21, mm-hmm. you said. So was it was there a particular age group that you got along with better or was it just were the issues similar like throughout that spectrum of of ages that's a really good question um they're not similar i mean similar in the sense that all of the children are there for basically one reason they've experienced some type of crisis mm. and that has is what brought them to the inpatient unit but the Differences between the younger kids and the older kids was pretty stark just because I so when I worked there not during my internship during my internship I worked with all ages but when I worked there I primarily worked with adolescents so that was 18 or excuse me 11 to 18 sometimes up to 21 Um, but the little kids a lot of times they're there for behavioral issues so you'll see a lot of like reactive attachment where they have kind of these like crazy outbursts, their struggle to handle their anger and um, any of emotions. Whereas with the older kids, you see a lot of depression, anxiety, things like that. So closer to those kind of more tougher, tougher issues like suicide. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, if, so some of those, like the childhood traumas of learning to deal with those emotions when they're spiking you know like that's that's a very important skill to be a part of society is or and I could be off here maybe you're like uh there isn't a connection here but is there a connection between maybe like not learning to control those issues at a younger age and then them manifesting into something like suicide or or even something like anxiety or because I know um even in our lifetime like anxiety has just become such a big talking Mm -hmm. point or something that I think almost everybody relates to in some way, either themselves personally or someone they know. So is there some kind of correlation between those things or do you think of them as like separate kind of issues? No, I I absolutely think there's correlations. I do want to preface and say I am not, you know, an expert by any means, Um, but my master's is in basically crisis and trauma. So um, that's kind of what I've focused on a lot of my schooling was trauma. And you're exactly right that a lot of these kids, due to their circumstances, and and not always their circumstances, it doesn't always have to be like this really rough situation growing up, 
um, sometimes they have a normal life or what we would yeah. guess is a normal life mm-hmm. or what we would associate as normal. Um, but yeah, exactly. So we do a lot, or when I worked there, we did a lot of coping strategy, skill building, um, which is exactly what you just said. So learning how to respond to our emotions that can otherwise feel really overwhelming. And if you kind of have these learned responses to your anger, to your sadness, that may seem over the top or not, not a normal response. That, that's how you are. Like that's mm-hmm. what you know and that's how you've learned to get attention, how you've learned to get support, um, anything like that. So yeah, I think that the coping skills is exactly, once they've learned those, they're better able to face those challenges like anger, um, mm-hmm. sadness, anxiety. But I think also, this is a thing you hear a lot in psychology is this idea of like, oh, there are more kids with autism now. There are more kids with depression and anxiety. Um, And I think on one hand, there is more identification of of kids with those uh, disorders or struggles. But on the other hand, I think it's just become more known. Like even my parents, they they didn't validate a lot of stuff about psychology and mental health. It took a lot for them to learn that these are real issues that people yeah. have and struggle with. I know, it's interesting to think about the generational differences. And like I, I think you were saying, there's almost been a lot of discovery or identifying, mm-hmm. like you were saying, of these issues. Whereas, you know, maybe for older generations they existed, but they're, they're difficult to see or you need experts to study um, I think I think it was funny you made the aside to, or this is a quick aside. I'm sorry that I'm gonna make that you made the distinction that you're not an expert because we do that almost every podcast we do <laughs> as well. Just like we'll fit, we'll get very into something, and be like, wait, uh, I don't know what I'm talking about, but right. you definitely do know what you're talking. I want to uh, validate you in that, you, you or affirm you, I guess, that you do know what you're talking about. But um, yeah, but going back to the the these these like mental, um, it's not a disease, but just a you know, infirmities, I guess, that, like, we Mm -hmm. all deal with or think about, and um, I'm not sure if I ever told you, but when I was younger, I had similar issues where difficult regulating anger, Mm -hmm. difficulties with um, overwhelming anxiety was actually on medication for a while uh, when I was younger, but then learned the coping, like, through probably some of the programs that you would do, like, learned ways to cope with that, and, you know, was, was fine, but, like, I'm definitely someone that very much benefited from those things, and so... I definitely agree that it's important to at least acknowledge that those things exist and that um, it's worth definitely worth studying or researching right. and not just turning the blind eye to Absolutely. or denying to. I yeah, I don't think many people are that way anymore. But I, you know, even as like a, a kid trying to understand what's you're going going through or dealing with, it's, it doesn't help when people are like, "Oh, it's all in your head," and, uh-huh. and like to an extent it is. But you know, to have people that will listen to you and talk with you through it is super helpful. Well, and I think when you look at it as not being um, something wrong with someone else, instead it's just like if you think of a person and a capable person or someone you would deem capable, they have this set of skills or these tools. Um, I I do this activity with the kids. I've, I've worked with 
like at schools and at the hospital, I do this activity called creating your toolbox. And in, inside it, I have like, I'll, I'll make like a wrench and a hammer. But inside of it, it's like identify people that you trust, adults mm. that you trust, or what are coping skills? Um, how, do, how could I tell by looking at you that you're starting to feel angry or upset? You know, all these different things so that they can accumulate their toolbox so that they can use their tools later when they have yeah. a challenge. But like you take that almost for granted for a lot of people who were raised in maybe a more supportive home or were given, taught those skills, that they just have them. They're able to control their anger and they're able mm -hmm. to respond to their emotions. Um, but sometimes that's just not the case. Sometimes children develop and they don't develop those skills and adults too. And, and in turn, it can affect your adulthood. But it's all about teaching those tools so that they can be more successful. That's really cool. Because I even I think about like a speech class that you would take. They do those sort of things where you're visualizing like a room and then you're placing certain things in certain areas. Right. It almost reminds me of that kind of like illustration. But because, you know, we're very visual beings. And so being able to understand a toolbox is something we've all seen and can understand. Right. And um yeah, assigning meaning to these different tools and understanding when to use them uh -huh. or when they're flaring up. Um, that's super cool that you're able to do that. I, I wanted to run something by you <laughs> that I remember from when I was a kid, yeah. like in counseling. And um, they, it was very simple, but they said like, wear a rubber band. And whenever you're having an anxious thought, think about it like a TV and like the rubber bands are remote and you're like changing the channel when you just like snap it against your skin like gently or something. That really worked for me for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Is that something you've ever heard of or can you see like, oh yeah, there's some merit to that or yeah, something absolutely. like that? Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely heard of the rubber band snapping, but it's this bigger idea. Um, probably what I imagine you were doing was called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And it's basically this idea of like changing our mindset. So... Uh, for, for people who struggle with anxious thoughts, it can be overwhelming when your yeah. thoughts are kind of taking over. It's all you can think about. So CBT has this idea that you can take a hold of those and then change those behavior or those thoughts. So kind of with that idea of like, you're literally flipping the remote on your thoughts and yeah. saying, you know, I'm not, that's not what I'm going to be focusing on right now. So yeah, absolutely. I've that's heard cool. That. It reminds me too. So in the book we're reading that I alluded to earlier, um, there's this uh, reference to T.S. Eliot, the poet, mm -hmm. but apparently he wrote a play, and in the play, the person's talking with a psychologist and, and asks, you know, is this thing in my life a result of my own doing, or is it a result of nature, God, etc.? And the psychologist is kind of taken aback by the question and, like, asks, you know, um, well, what, what's the difference? Like, you have the problem you're trying to work through. And the character essentially says, well, if it's my own fault, it's something I can control and fix. But if it's nature or something that God has set in motion, it's something out of my control. Mm -hmm. So that's it. That quote reminds me of that because there, it is like in that moment, it, it can feel like, oh, I can't sort through all this. It's too much information going on in my mind. But then if you can do something simple, easy, manageable to kind of set that chaos into order, you know, just focus on the one thought, then the next thought, then, you know, like that's something that's very practic practical and very, you know, manageable for a person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that also kind of 
I don't know if this is where you want to go, but... Sure, we can go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of that idea of psychology, like grow, or when I was going through school and kind of getting acquainted with what psychology is, there's almost this dissonance between psychology and Christianity and kind of navigating through that because when you look at psychology and theories, um, a lot of that doesn't leave room for God. I mean, to me it does. Like now, in hindsight and looking at it, like I think practicing psychology or um, any type of psychology with children or adults or anything, like it is my greatest way to like engage with God and his people. But there is this like dis- dissonance between there because it's like, you know, in Christianity, especially if you're raised that way, it's like, God is in control, which is absolutely true. But I'm mm-hmm. saying, like, he wouldn't give you, you know, he gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. And, like, he'll never bring you through anything you can't get through. And doesn't leave room for these areas like anxiety, where someone mm-hmm. who's a devout Christ follower and who loves worshiping and, and honoring God and still struggles with something like anxiety, which it says in the Bible, Bible that he doesn't give you a spirit of anxiety. So how do you wrestle with that? How do you validate? It's a great question. Right. Yeah. And, well, I'll, I'll start by saying I don't have an answer, maybe, but I think that those are kind of questions that are worth asking because there is, I think, in my limited experience or knowledge, there is kind of a branch of the Christian faith that doesn't embrace sort of uh, those mental issues because of, like, verses like that that you can quote, maybe even out of context. I don't know the context of the <laughs> verses. I'll, I'll be the first to say that. But, you know, it seems it seems to me at first, you know, thought that you're, you're basically taking something, you're hearing at face value and not thinking about what's going on. You're taking the verse and using it to support a, a limited understanding, maybe. Yeah. But um, I guess... The, so, and part of what my mind goes to when you ask that question is sanctification and mm-hmm. how mystical that process is mm-hmm. as far as, it's it's like uh, like the come as you are, don't leave as you come. Like, I don't know, that's just one of those catchy things that uh, millions of people say that uh, comes to mind. But it's, it's like, you know, maybe you don't have anxiety at first, but then you do. And then it's like life in a lot of ways is suffering. So it's, it's like, this is the burden that you have to bear. And it's, I mean, I think there are cases too, where like you can be healed of those things through prayer, through counseling, through, you know, taking the proper steps, um, to, to address the issue. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people, I, my mom comes to mind as someone where, you know, it's a, it's almost like a, um, perpetual issue you're learning to deal right. with, you're learning to cope with. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely, I, I, I don't think it's a, a simple issue of, no. yeah, just grin and bear it, get through it mm-hmm. or, you know, and it, it's frustrating. For, I, I can imagine it's frustrating for someone going through that because they know that they should be in control, but right. they're not. So that like you're, there's like some sort of dissonance even within themselves of, I should I should know how to manage these thoughts, but I can't, or I'm not. And Absolutely. That, I can imagine that sparking the the anxiety on further instead of something that's being more closer to like a remedy. Right. For it. So. And 
You yeah. know, the, the way I've always looked at it is when a person is sick, like has cancer uh, or a med- any type of medical issue, right. and let's say, you know, they're, they're brought to the altar and they're prayed over, and then that disease doesn't go away. Yeah. That does not mean God isn't capable to do those things. He says he is. And it also doesn't mean the person with the sickness is that there's something blotted on them that mm-hmm. God couldn't fix it because they have a problem. I mean, it is literally the same. But there is some type of stigma around mental health. Whereas just because, I mean, your, your mom is a perfect example. Like yeah. such a woman of faith. I hope she doesn't mind us talking about her. She <laughs> might be like, be yeah. quiet. But but at the same time, for anyone, like if you're struggling with something and it is a lifelong battle or whatever, right. like just because that doesn't go away doesn't mean that one, you're less worthy of God's love or um, that there's something wrong with you that God won't fix it. It's just, it, it is what it is. And I think it's such a nuanced thing where it's so stigmatized for Christ followers to have mental health issues because that is a sign that you don't love God enough, that you haven't done something enough, which is in the very essence the complete opposite of what Christianity is as a whole. Mm -hmm. We believe the gospel is. We were never worthy for anything. Um, So so why would he start checking if we're worthy now? Um, But anyway, I just think that it's, it's something that as a Christ follower in practicer of psychology, I guess. It was something I really wanted to wrestle with and get to the bottom of because I wanted to, to align those so, so clearly, you know? And I think it's, it's really important. I'm passionate about it. I just, I want to validate people, but also, you know, say that just because you struggle doesn't mean, you know, whatever. There's my PSA. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you a uh, difficult follow-up question? Yeah. Do you think you've been able to align the two as of now, or do you think that's something that's going to be a lifelong kind of like for you, like a goal to kind of like keep them aligned or maybe it changes over time Mm -hmm. or as your understanding grows? I think it'll always, there'll always be something that I learn or that I like theories, for example, which is Mm -hmm. basically what all psychology is, is a bunch of theories. Like music too. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so kind of just always guiding through those and seeing where I line. But there was something that happened, I think when I was working at children's that just clicked for me. And um, because I always struggle, I think so many people do struggle believing that what you're doing uh, in your in your career, your life, which can see so seem so monotonous or so whatever, Especially as an accountant, <laughs> right? <laughs> to see like, is this God's purpose for me? Like that was I always struggled. I'm like, this can't be it. Like He has yeah. to have me be a missionary and do X Y Z, but that's not the case. And kind of believing and hearing and and being in kind of unity with God and knowing that He has put me exactly where I need to be um, has helped me. But also understanding that just be, God is the creator of all things, mm-hmm. including our minds, which, as we know, in any area, it, are vast. Like, the, our minds are, that's a whole, psychology is the study of the mind. Yeah. Um, but God created our minds. And so I don't believe anything he created is bad. Mm-hmm. And I don't think knowledge is bad. I think um, putting one above another, like putting my desire to be knowledgeable over my, you know, um, adoration towards God, that would be wrong. But I think that he, he wants us to know and he gave us uh, an ability to, to learn. Does that answer your question? I don't know. No, it it does. I, so, and 
to be fair, I don't think there was quite an answer. It was more or less <laughs> right. like, are you ever going to get to the spot where it's, right. they're completely merged? But it's like you were saying, it's kind of like changing, especially as you're learning more theories over time. Um, but I think what you're saying too interests me in that, um, you know, just the, the complexity of the mind and how mm -hmm. little we know about it. As far as like, even from a biological standpoint, it's like, we know how the brain works right. to a certain extent. Again, not an expert, but, <laughs> but I think we have an understanding of maybe like what the areas of the brain do and we can do these complicated brain surgeries with relative ease. Uh, my cousin was actually a good example of this, Scott. You know, they were able to target the portion of his brain where seizures were happening, remove it, issues gone. Like, that's amazing. That's like right. a miracle to me. That's amazing that we can know how to do that. But the mind feels more like an ocean where it's, we've explored like this much of it. Or even consciousness, I think is a very interesting mm -hmm. uh, topic to try to discuss. Um, you know, but... It's one of those things where you you wonder, I mean, obviously our knowledge is going to grow in these areas, but you wonder if there is something just spiritual or, or you know, otherworldly about the mind that, like, can't fully be explained through scientific method and what we're able to know. Um, so that's, yeah, I don't know. I, I agree with you in that at times it feels... It feels as if people want to try to distinguish this is science, this is maybe psychology, which is a part of science, but mm -hmm. then religion is something else. Mm -hmm. And like spirituality and religion, you know, have some touch points, but they're different things too. Right. But these, I don't know, in my mind, I almost see them all as kind of like inner working in, in some kind of coherent, mystical way that, you know, encumbers the world or embodies the world mm -hmm. not encumbers I don't even know if it encumbers a word but <laughs> <laughs> um, so sorry I wanted to I went on a bit of a tangent there I wanted to go back to the experience at Children's Hospital mm -hmm. to based on the discussion we've kind of just had kind of this you know understanding or trying to understand psychology the way we're made um, were there any stories there where you're able to see like notable progression in like patients as far as like well-being or general mindsets or even like crazy stories where something went terribly awry but then it was able to maybe work out or maybe it didn't I, I'm just curious to hear maybe some of that um, I think there was, it, it's so hard reflecting back on that time because it was just, it was probably one of the hardest times of my life working there because mm. it was, I mean, you were walking into a battle zone every day yeah. and for, you know, my shift was eight and a half hours for those eight and a half hours. It was like, I had to be on my toes every minute of it because Again, I'm working with adolescents in the height of their crisis. So they're mm -hmm. there for, quote, unquote, five to seven days, could be longer. And it's kind of like what, what is called in trauma, like in trauma circles, like first aid, like emotional first aid. So we're kind of triaging them emotionally to get them to be wow. able to go back out um, because they've endured a crisis, which could be like a severe loss, like maybe extreme grief or psychotic break, or suicide attempt, or anything of those nature. So anyway, it was really, it's a challenging time, and it's hard to look back and be like, oh, I remember 
a lot of these kids, they walked away so much better because a lot of times it was just getting them good enough and get the, give them their tools so that they can face their life out yeah. there. Um, but I do remember when I was in an internship, there was, and I'll be vague, but I, there was a patient that um, had endured so much trauma, and this patient was young, and so much trauma in their lifetime that it had literally physically made them mute. Like it wasn't a choice, like they lost their ability to form words to speak because of how much trauma they had gone through, just, I mean, relentless trauma. And so when they got there, I mean, he was there for weeks and weeks kind of learning um, how to speak again. So that was really cool to be like alongside that child uh, through their journey and like learning to to communicate, which is just something we take so much for granted. Yes. Um, and learning to express their emotions and things like that. So that was a really excellent story. But I have about a million scary or like crazy stories really? too that go on it. But yeah, it was just a lot of um, like we were trained in it's called uh, crisis intervention basically. But even to the point where we would have to like physically hold them if they were being aggressive, things like that. And that was what it was every day. There was somebody so mad, throwing things, breaking things, fighting you, or hurting themselves, and you're just kind of there as their support. And you know, you you have to leave your human emotions at the door almost. I mean, you can have your compassion and empathy. But you can't react. Like, if you as a person were, like, started hitting me, I'd be like, Logan, you need to get off me. Or, like, you know, I would react. But that can't be done there. It's all, like, no emotion, no expression, no reaction, just, like, undying support. We'll be here to help you when you're ready. Like, things like that. So I'm sorry. I I want to cut in here with a little bit that uh, reminded me of the book we're reading or discussing because the person, the author is a um, clinical psychologist Mm -hmm. so he had a practice and he was talking about you know um, essentially kids that are violent in that way like with especially with the hitting or even some kids can be verbally violent Mm -hmm. as well but if if they're not if that those behaviors aren't worked out properly they pay the societal consequences later in life because those aren't good behaviors to have in us. They're, they're not uh, productive. They're not, you know, you can't handle uh, arguments that way. And so you, he essentially framed it as you can either parent your children like when you're seeing the issues or if you're, I mean, this obviously doesn't apply specifically to those situations you're talking about. He's talking more generally like mm-hmm. Um, not kids with like trauma backgrounds, but just in general. So it's a little bit different. I would, do want to preface that. But he was saying if you're not doing your job or as a parent, then those issues. So, because say you want to be compassionate to the kid without also um, like disciplining mm-hmm. when there are like negative or like um, behaviors that would limit them from future opportunities, say, in the world. Because if you're not doing the parenting as, with the children, then the world essentially does that. Yep. And it's a lot more cruel at home. Harsh, out. yeah. Yeah. And again, that's, that's different from, obviously, these kids have traumatic backgrounds. So it's like, that's a whole other issue. But it just reminded me of what you were talking about with these kind of like general uh, clinical um, patients he was seeing. 
And he, he has a good quote too of something how like the, the toddler is the most violent person <laughs> in the world as far as just like the outbursts yeah. and the hitting and the, and the not sharing, the stealing, you know, things like that. So it, it's a bit comical, but it's also true that if those behaviors aren't being noticed and like dealt with accordingly, then if, the, if they're left to persist, the child ends up paying consequences later as a result. And they learn their lessons a lot more, with a lot more difficulty than mm -hmm. they would if, with just the gentle rebuke of the parent. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's really fascinating. Uh, trauma aside, like yeah, yeah. if you look at children and their family dynamics, I mean, you see that there's this, I mean, they call it the poverty to prison pipeline, mm. but let's look at poverty as like a general sense, um, which could be low income, but also, um, diverse family structures. So we're so used to in our suburban life, which maybe you, you had some experience and whatever. I'm just saying we can generalize and be like two parents, mm -hmm. siblings, we went to private school. Um, but that's just not the case for many, many, probably more yeah. um, than not. And even divorce at all the way to being in foster care, you're, you're hinging on this idea of like your parents teach you those lessons as you grow up. And almost you form this resiliency, um, this idea of like, they, people believe that children are inherently resilient, that they mm. like, when they fall down and scrape their knee, you know, get right back up, they'll be fine, you know, that resiliency. But that is just not true. Like, we are taught resiliency through our life. Interesting. Yeah, through supportive parents or whatever. So when you look at any type of child who goes through a, a a different circumstance where that resiliency is not built, that's when we see things like if it's never managed, they, they can end up in prison for not being able mm. to control their anger or, yeah, you know, really worse than that. Point. So there are definitely these ties to, like, if you don't have that support, it can ultimately really hinder you in your adulthood. It's interesting you bring up the resiliency being a learned behavior mm -hmm. or, or taught. Because in the, again, sorry, I keep defaulting back to this book, but it's what's gotten me really interested into psychology mm -hmm. is that um, he talks about, there's a philosopher, uh, Rousseau, and that person essentially had the idea that children are inherently good or um, pure in spirit. Mm -hmm. and well, they are, they're definitely pure because they're, they're young, they're inexperienced, but that if they were left essentially unattended, if they were just left to their own devices, they would grow up into these wonderful people, these wonderful creatures. But then he, he makes that point of, well, that's not the case because of the toddler being, you know, this essentially aggressive person. And if those behaviors aren't worked out, it's, so it's, it's interesting how much of who we become is what we're taught. And I know there's that old conversation of, you know, uh, genetics and then, nature like, versus na nurture. Yeah, exactly. Like all that sort of thing. So, um, I guess they don't necessarily have enough knowledge to even form an opinion mm -hmm. on that sort of stuff, but that's at least stuff I'm like starting to wrestle through or think about. And I was curious if you maybe had any thoughts of like the nature versus nurture stuff or even with your experience, like, you know, working with a lot of different kids with a lot of different backgrounds, if you had s seen situations that maybe would have formed an opinion on that. Yeah, I'm, 
I do somehow remember who Rousseau is. I took one oh. philosophy <laughs> class. I hated it. I hate philosophy, really? which is so funny because it kind of, well, some people think they go against each other, psych and philosophy, but anyway. Um, yeah, the, I think anybody, we were just talking about this the other day in one of my classes, nature versus nurture, and I think overall, if you look at anybody in psychology, they're going to say there's there can't be one without the other. Like, they're just, there isn't just one def- solo like it isn't just how you're born it isn't just how you're raised because if you think about it at least for me when I think of my mom there's so many things that she has and my dad that are just inherent inside of me that I know I didn't learn like I can't you know it's just because I'm their child but on the other hand I think there are so many things that I learned because of circumstance so I think they are like my confident answer is that they they are you can't have one without the other. I wonder about so to maybe bring up a specific example, something like optimism versus pessimism. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think would be a learned because it there's almost part of me that I'm a very optimistic person mm-hmm. and um I yeah, I just wonder if that's like innate in me like that's god-given if that's learned from circum like you said it's probably both but i don't know there's and even just like the introverted extroverted stuff is interesting to me too because i was are you an introvert i am now but i didn't used to be i used to be an extrovert so i think it fluctuates was that through like covid and everything no it was like in college for some reason or after i graduated college i just don't know what Just it was. Flip. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's an, I've definitely been, I always try to stay, I'm a very, I try to be a very balanced person, nine on the Enneagram. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I know. Um, yes, but like even with the inter, uh, introvert, extrovert stuff, I think depending on certain phases of my life, I've definitely felt more extroverted or more introverted. Just yeah, I don't, it's interesting to think, like, where are you getting your energy from, mm-hmm. and why does that change over mm-hmm. time, and it, yeah, I don't know, like, maybe that's a bit of the, the learned experience kind mm-hmm. of shaping that dynamic within you, but then some people you meet, and they're, you know, they're just, like, I'm, I work in accounting, so I can say this confidently, <laughs> there, there are a ton of introverts, like, that love being accountants, could not talk to anyone all day, and are fine like that they would prefer that way and I think I'm more maybe like an introvert with extroverted tendencies so I like to be on my own to have these like reveries where I'm like dreaming thinking creating Mm -hmm. but then I ultimately need to share what I'm processing with people so yeah it's it's an interesting dance but though our our makeup in our minds is just so intricate and like fascinating to to think about like how we got to these places where we are and right you know the, the formative experiences but then also the like what in us is just innate you know um, I think a good example of that and again I am no expert so I'm just going off my personal experience but maybe that's a podcast we form <laughs> I'm no expert <laughs> that's what my podcast was called not an expert not an expert <laughs> you already got yeah already had a curve there yeah. but um my husband is like innately he kind of reminds me of you a lot he's innately optimistic and he's mm. such a dreamer and he reminds I want to get of, him on the podcast yeah you point. should yeah. he reminds me of Luke too I always said they were similar but like such a dreamer there's nothing too big for him 
which is the complete opposite of me. Like I am a complete realist. I'm very logical, yeah. analytical. My wife is that way. Right. Well. Yeah. So kind of this dichotomy, I guess, between us two, because when I look at my family, I think inherently from my dad, he, we are the same, like the mm. same way. But then on the same hand, I look at my husband who his parent, like his dad's a chemistry professor. Um, so he's very, you know, reasonable and scientific too. But they were always so encouraging. Like there was nothing mm. Carl could do his whole life that he, that he couldn't do. Like there's just, they wanted him to do anything, take every opportunity. He was raised in Africa. Like he was just like all over. I didn't know that. Born wow. and raised in Born Sudan. Um, but yeah, so he's just kind of always lived this really crazy life. Whereas I've always lived kind of a structure, like you're going to go to college, you're going to, you know, mm. make a living and have a house and blah, blah, blah. I so, think it's interesting too. Because I think that's very much a Midwestern <laughs> yeah. mindset of, Absolutely. you know, you're going to work hard, you're going to get your degree, and you're going to work hard some more, you know, get married, have a family, all that. And, um, yeah, it's just maybe ingrained in us or taught or whatever. But that's funny to, to hear about. I, I didn't know Carl was from Africa, but that's really cool. To, that has to be such a different experience. So. For sure. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, as far as, being just dri like driven to dream mm -hmm. or because I'm the same or I shouldn't say same but I'm similar in that way where I have I have all these ideas but I actualize very little to none of them and my wife helps me kind of um, value them so what's the most important mm -hmm. let's work let's do that thing and then the other ones you know you know, maybe they <laughs> fall to the wayside. If you have time, you address right. them, you know, whatever else. But. That was when uh, Carl and I were dating. He was, I mean, he had dropped out of college. He loves coffee. He's, like, done a couple coffee shops, blah, blah, blah. Like, he's just everywhere all at once. And it's so great to be around him. Like, he's so magnetic, like, you know. But at the same time, when we're going getting more serious, I'm like, you, I don't care that you dream. You can have any dream you want. Just pick one. Yeah. Like, just do one. Just achieve a goal. Because that that's... Dreaming is perfectly fine, and I'll support you in anything, but I also think you need fulfillment, like, yeah. you know, whatever. So, and, and it's so cool to see, like, how we've kept going, and, like, he did um, some school for web design anyway, but he, he achieved a goal, and, like, how satisfying it's been for him, so, but it is very, very interesting to, yeah. to examine it. Yeah, oh, for sure, and I think, too, you had mentioned earlier in the podcast and then I think you had just alluded to um, your schooling so I you're at Miami Hamilton Miami Oxford Miami Oxford thank you mm -hmm. um, studying um, what exactly is the school psychology. school psychology so I'll be a school psychologist at the end Very of it cool. yep and um, so it's a little bit different it still has it is psychology but it has more to do with um, like special education and students with disabilities. So like I'll be at a public school and um, kind of do like assessments, diagnostic stuff just to help make sure students with disabilities have the appropriate services. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. Well, that's very exciting. And then you also have a podcast, not an expert. Yeah. And is this still something ongoing or maybe it's paused or... I don't know. I will say I got the email. You have to, there's so much stuff to do for a podcast, but like, you know, you have to like have a, 
something like I put it on a website and then that puts it on Spotify or whatever yeah and they asked me if I wanted to renew it and I didn't but maybe one day, maybe one day. I'll go back to it but well, yes for the listener for the listener at home or the viewer too since this is being recorded <laughs> look at all the cameras um you know uh, feel free to check out Mackenzie's uh, podcast not an expert and Mackenzie want to thank you so much for coming on it was a really good conversation I think about some issues that I'm starting to gain interest in, but then you clearly are very wise. (laughs) Thank you. I had such a good time. (laughs) Good. Glad to hear you. All right. Bye. Bye.